This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Victims' Rights, The Biblical View of Civil Justice by Gary North. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1990. This book is dedicated to Baby Doe and the 50 million other victims who are aborted annually worldwide. They, not their executioners, deserve our compassion. Chapter 5. Legitimate Violence If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Exodus 21, 22-25 The theocentric principle here is that man is made in God's image and therefore must be protected by civil law. The husband of the victimized woman represents God the judge to the convicted criminal. The state is required to impose sanctions specified by the husband. The violent person who has imposed on the woman and the child the risk of injury or death, must compensate the family. The judges do retain some degree of authority in specifying the appropriate sanction. The criminal must pay, as the judges determine. In the absence of actual physical harm, there is no rigorous or direct way to assess the value of this risk of injury or death, so the state does not allow the husband to be unreasonable in imposing sanctions. Where physical damage can be determined objectively, the criminal must pay on an eye-for-eye basis. This is the judicial principle known as the lex talionis. The punishment must fit the magnitude of the violation. The violation is assessed in terms of the damages inflicted. Controversy over abortion Exodus 21, 22-25 has recently become one of the most controversial passages in the Old Testament. Prior to the 1960s, when the abortion issue again began to be debated publicly in the United States after half a century of relative silence, only the second half of this passage was controversial in Christian circles. The judicial requirement of an eye for an eye. The abortion aspect of the argument was not controversial, for the practice of abortion was illegal and publicly invisible. A physician who performed an abortion could be sent to jail. It was clearly understood by Christians that anyone who caused a premature birth in which the baby died or was injured had committed a criminal act, despite the fact that the person did not plan to cause the infant's injury or death. The abortion described in the text is the result of a man's battle with another man, an illegitimate form of private vengeance for which each man is made fully responsible should injury ensue, either to each other Exodus 21, 18, and 19, or to innocent bystanders. If this sort of accidental abortion is treated as a criminal act, how much more a deliberate abortion by a physician or other murderer? Only when pagan intellectuals in the general culture came out in favor of abortion on demand did pro-abortionists 
within the church begin to deny the relevancy of the introductory section of the passage. This anti-abortion attitude among Christians began to change with the escalation of the humanists' pro-abortion rhetoric in the early 1960s. Christian intellectuals have always taken their ideological cues from the humanist intellectuals who have established the prevailing climate of opinion, from the early church's acceptance of the categories of pagan Greek philosophy to the modern church's acceptance of tax-funded, religiously neutral education. As the humanists' opinions regarding the legitimacy of abortion began to change in the early 1960s, so did the opinions of the Christian intellectual community. Speaking for the dispensationalist world of social thought, dispensationalist author Tommy Ice forthrightly admitted in a 1988 debate, quote, Premillennialists have always been involved in the present world, and basically they have picked up on the ethical positions of their contemporaries, end quote. He defended this practice, it should be noted. The shift in Christian opinion regarding the illegitimacy of abortion took place throughout the 1960s and early 1970s. The moral schizophrenia of contemporary pietism can be seen when anti-abortion picketers confront killer physicians at their offices with some variation of, Smile, God loves you. Or, God hates abortion but loves abortionists. On the contrary, God hates abortionists, and he demands that the civil government execute them. Where are Christian protesters who pray the imprecatory psalms, such as Psalm 83? Where are they calling publicly on God to bring judgment against abortionists and their political allies? Only when Christian anti-abortionists freely and enthusiastically admit that the Bible demands the public execution for all convicted abortionists, and also for the women who pay for them, will they at least be proclaiming the Bible's judicial requirements? The fact that they draw back from proclaiming this testifies to the appalling lack of biblical thinking that prevails in contemporary Christianity. The vast majority of Christians hate God's revealed law far more than they hate either abortion or abortionists. They would far rather live in a political world that is controlled by humanists who have legalized abortion than in a society governed by Christians in terms of biblical law. So, God has answered the desire of their hearts. He has done to modern Christians what he did to the Israelites in the wilderness. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Psalm 106, 15. The Legalized Slaughter of the Innocents I do not intend to deal in detail with the question of abortion in this context. There is no doubt that these verses apply to abortion. The legal issue is clear. Victims' rights. In all cases of public evil that the Bible prohibits, there must be judicial representatives of God. The victims are the primary representatives, and the various covenant officials are secondary representatives. When the victims cannot defend their interests, then the covenantal officers become the legal representatives of the victims. The potential victims in this case are the unborn infants, whose lives are sacrificed on the altar of convenience. Because they are incapable of speaking on their own behalf, God empowers their fathers to speak for them. Or in cases where a father remains silent, God empowers the civil government to speak for them. First, to prohibit abortion, and second, to impose the death penalty on all those who are involved with abortion, either as murderers, mothers, or as their paid accomplices, physicians, nurses, office receptionists, and so forth. 
false prophets. All this is conveniently ignored by Christian abortionists and their academically respectable false prophets. Examples of of pro-abortionists, especially physicians, in evangelical churches can be found in a book put out in 1969 by the Christian Medical Society, Birth Control and the Christian, a Protestant Symposium on the Control of Human Reproduction, edited by Walter O. Spitzer and Carlisle I. Saylor, Bruce K. Waltke, then a Dallas Theological Seminary professor and later a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, explicitly stated in that book that Exodus 21-22 teaches that, quote, the fetus is not reckoned as a soul, end quote. He subsequently reversed his pro-abortion stance. Dr. M. O. Vincent, psychiatrist, reported that the symposium moved him to conclude that, quote, the fetus has great and developing value, but is less than a human being. It will be sacrificed only for weighty reasons, end quote. Predictably, he refused to spell out in detail what these weighty reasons are. Dr. William B. Kaiswider, before leading the reader to his conclusion that a Christian physician friend was doing the right thing when he, quote, terminated the pregnancy, end quote, never seen as terminating the baby, of a missionary's wife, warns us against, quote, rigid authoritarian evangelicals who so often extract from the word of God precepts which they then can gel into a legalism by which everyone is admonished to live, end quote. His main problem is not with rigid authoritarian evangelicals. His main problem is with the rigid authoritarian God who commanded Moses to write Exodus 21, 22-25. This is the main problem faced by all false prophets who blithely deny the continuing judicial authority of God's Bible-revealed law and who then proceed to recommend the violation of God's law whenever convenient. In short, it is not necessarily immoral to take money for performing an abortion, provided that you are licensed by the medical profession to do so. These self-deluded physicians would bring a non-physician to court for practicing an abortion, an infringement on their state-licensed monopoly, but not a licensed colleague. Such is the state of 20th century medical ethics, including the ethics of self-professed Christians. A book by D. Gareth Jones, professor of anatomy at the University of New Zealand, Brave New People, Ethical Issues at the Commencement of Life, 1984 created a national Christian protest in the United States against its neo-evangelical, quote, liberal whenever remotely possible, end quote, publisher, InterVarsity Press. The book promotes a view of the fetus that would allow abortion in uncertain, undefined cases. Frankie Schaefer, the son of Francis Schaefer, whatever happened to the human race, mounted a protest in 1984 which led to the resignation of the editor of IVP, and the scrapping of the book. Erdman's republished it the next year. It is still published by IVP in Britain. A Question of Barbaric Sanctions Christian scholars generally choose to ignore Exodus 21, 22-25, and then they spend their time defending mass murder in the name of biblical ethics and compassion. Compassion for murderous women and their well-paid, state-licensed accomplices. Meanwhile, These critics of biblical law are busy challenging any defenders of the law with criticisms along these lines. Quote, You would reimpose the barbaric principle of poking out a man's eye or cutting off his hand. This is nothing but vengeance, a return to savagery. What possible good would it do 
the victim to see the assailant suffer physical damage identical to his own? Why not impose some sort of economic restitution to the victim? To inflict permanent injury on the assailant is to reduce his productivity and therefore the wealth of the community. By returning to Old Testament law, you are returning to the tribal laws of a primitive people. End quote. This line of criticism incorrectly assumes that the Lex Talionis principle was not in fact designed by God to encourage economic restitution to the victim from their criminal. Chapter 12 will demonstrate that Lex Talionis promotes economic restitution. Nevertheless, the question remains, which is truly barbaric, mass murder through legalized abortion or the required judicial sanctions revealed in biblical law? The Christian antinomians of our day, that is to say virtually all Christians, have voted for the barbaric character of biblical law. They are faced with a choice, minimal sanctions against abortion or the civil enforcement of biblical law. Their answer is automatic. They shout to their elected civil magistrates, Give us Barabbas. Better to suffer politically the silent screams of murdered babies, they conclude, than to suffer the theocratic embarrassment of calling for the public execution of convicted abortionists. The babies who are targeted for destruction have only a confused, inconsistent, waffling, squabbling, ragtag army of Christians to speak for them authoritatively in God's name inside the corridors of political and judicial power. Their defenders are agreed, quote, Abortion is the lesser of two evils if the alternative is theocracy. End quote. In stark contrast is the tiny handful of Christians who confidently believe in the whole Bible, including Exodus 21, 22 through 25, who have therefore confidently voted against abortion as the true barbarism and for biblical law as the sole long term foundation of Christian civilization. But most Christians have self-consciously suppressed any temptation to think about this dilemma, one way or the other. The thin picket lines in front of abortion clinics testify to the thoughtlessness of Christians in our day. So do the thin shelves of the Christian bookstores. Restitution and Vengeance The eye-for-an-eye principle is known by the Latin phrase lex talionis, or law of retaliation. The English word retaliate is derived from the same Roman root as talionis. Today, retaliate means to inflict injury, but earlier English usage conveyed a broader meaning, to pay back or return in kind, including goodwill. According to one source, the lex talionis was a Roman law that specified that anyone who brought an accusation against another citizen but could not prove his case in the courts would suffer the same penalty that he had sought to inflict on the defendant. This was a perverted version of the biblical principle of the law governing deliberate perjury, found in Deuteronomy 19.16-21, which concludes with a restatement of the eye-for-eye eye requirement in verse 21. The law reads, Then shall ye do unto him, the false witness, as he had thought to have done unto his brother, so shalt thou put the evil away from among you. Verse 19. Only if the innocent person could prove perjury on the part of his accuser could he demand that the civil government impose on the latter the penalty that would have been imposed on him. Not every Bible commentator has seen the eye-for-eye sanction as primitive. Shalom Paul writes, quote, Rather than being a primitive residuum, it restricts retaliation to the person of the offender, while at the same time limiting to it to the exact measure of the injury. 
thereby according equal justice to all. W. F. Albright, the archaeologist who specialized in Hebrew and Palestinian studies, wrote, quote, This principle may seem and is often said to be extraordinarily primitive, but it is exactly not in the least primitive. Whereas the beginnings of Lex Talionis are found before Israel, the principle was now extended by analogy until it dominated all punishment of injuries or homicides. In ordinary ancient Oriental jurisprudence, men who belonged to the higher social categories or who were wealthy simply paid fines, otherwise escaping judgment, dot, dot, dot. So the Lex Talionis is, dot, 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 the principle of equal justice for all, end quote. Albright understood some of the implications of the passage for the principle of equal justice for all, meaning equality before the law. Nevertheless, the myth of primitive legislation still clings in people's minds. It seems to some Christians to be a needlessly bloody law. In a reaction against the rigor of this judicial principle, liberal scholar Hans Joschen Boker goes so far as to argue that Old Testament law was not actually governed by Lex Talionis that it only appears in three instances, and that it is a holdover of early nomadic law. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance in the Bible is God's original responsibility. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Deuteronomy 32.35 If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. Deuteronomy 32, 41-42a All nations are required to rejoice because of God's willingness and ability to avenge his people. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Deuteronomy 32.43 These passages and many others in the Old Testament are the foundation of Paul's summary statement, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 12.19b For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people, Hebrews 10.30. God makes it clear that he sometimes intervenes personally in history and brings bloody vengeance on his enemies. The state, under limited and Bible-defined circumstances, possesses an analogous authority. It is therefore highly inaccurate to say that the authority to impose vengeance in history is exclusively God's prerogative. God has delegated to the civil government its limited and derived sovereignty, to impose physical vengeance. The state is allowed, by the testimony of witnesses, to impose the death penalty and other physical punishments. Perfect justice must wait until the day of judgment. So must perfect vengeance. But men do not have to wait until the end of time in order to see preliminary justice done, and therefore preliminary vengeance imposed. Vengeance is a form of restitution. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. This repayment is in the form of punishment and even permanent judgment. God pays back what is owed to the sinner. It is repayment in kind, an original meaning of retaliate. K. 
capital crimes require the public execution of the guilty person. In the case of crimes less repugnant to God than capital crimes, economic restitution is often paid by the criminal to the victim. But restitution is ultimately owed to God. The victim, as God's image bearer, deserves his restitution, just as God deserves his. When repayment in kind is not made, a sense of injustice prevails. The victim, or the family members who survive the victim, understand that a convicted criminal who is not forced to make restitution has evaded justice. Such an escape is seen as being unfair. Fair Warning God reminds His people that His ultimate justice cannot be evaded. This testimony of a final judgment is provided by the sanctions imposed by the authorities. Historical sanctions are designed by God to fit the crime in order to persuade men that the universe is ultimately fair, for both time and eternity are governed by the decree of God. God's people should not despair because some men escape the earnest, down payment of the final justice that is coming. The 73rd Psalm is a reminder of the seeming injustice of life and how the wicked are finally rewarded according to their deeds. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, 3. David was beaten down by events. Verse 2. Yet he saw all the good things that come to the wicked in life. Verses 4-5 through and 12. He flayed himself with such thoughts. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation, as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. Verses 17-19. through David finally admits, So foolish was I, and ignorant I was as a beast before thee. Verse 22. The relationship between covenantal faithfulness and external prosperity is clearly taught in the Bible. Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. So is the relationship between covenant breaking and calamity. Deuteronomy 28, 15-68. This system of sanctions applies to the whole world, not just in Old Testament Israel. Deny this, and you have also denied the possibility of an explicitly and exclusively Christian social theory. Christians who deny the continuing relevance of Deuteronomy 28's sanctions in post-Calvary, pre-Second Coming history, should be warned by David's admission that he had been foolish to doubt those relationships. The concept of slippery places is not often discussed, but it is very important. God sets people high in order to make them slide, visibly, before the world. God said to Pharaoh, For now I will stretch out my hand that I might smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Exodus nine fifteen and 16. The temporary prosperity of the wicked must not be viewed as evidence that would call into question the long-term relationship between covenant breaking and destruction. Conclusion Vengeance is legitimate, but not as a private act. It is always to be covenantal, governed by God's institutional monopoly, civil government. James Fitzjames Stephen said it best, quote, The criminal law stands to the passion of revenge in much the same relation as marriage to the sexual appetite. End quote. The private vendetta is always illegitimate. Public vengeance is sometimes legitimate. 
There are many examples of private vengeance not sanctioned by God. Gangster wars, clan feuds, the murder of those who testify against a criminal or syndicate, and murderers for breaking the code of silence of a secret society. It is a crime against God himself to take any oath that testifies to the right of any private organization or voluntary society to inflict physical violence, especially death, for breaking the oath or any other violation of the code, even if this oath's invoked penalties are supposedly only symbolic rather than literal. I refer here to Masonic oaths, but also to any other similar oath. For example, the oath of an entered apprentice of the Masonic order ends with these words, quote, dot, 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 binding myself under no less penalty than that of having my throat cut from ear to ear, my tongue torn out by its roots and buried in the rough sands of the sea at low water mark, where the tide ebbs and flows twice in 24 hours, should I ever knowingly or willingly violate this my solemn oath and obligation as an entered apprentice mason, end quote. Such an oath affirms the legitimacy of private institutional vengeance, vengeance applied by institutions that have not been assigned the state's limited sovereignty to serve as God's agency of vengeance. This sort of physical vengeance is prohibited by biblical law, but the Bible does not condemn all earthly vengeance. The state is an agency of God's vengeance, so is the church, but the church may not lawfully impose physical vengeance while the state can. Therefore, no church can legitimately invoke oaths or oath signs similar in form to secret society blood oaths. A church that does this has marked itself as a cult. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.